0: Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: Hey, tremendous Friday. What day is it? Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Friday. Colin Donovan is in the house. It's first Friday. So I hope that you, uh, if you are a partaker of that particular devotion, that you're uh, seeing to uh, your responsibilities uh, that are associated with that. And uh, tomorrow, it's interestingly enough, again this month, first Saturday follows first Friday. It's amazing how that works out.
2: Well, that's true. It seems to happen fairly regularly. So it's <laughs> you know it's good that uh, you know Jesus and Mary get those special monthly feasts back to back as yeah, they yeah, yeah. as yeah. they do.
1: Yes, the Twin Hearts. We uh, yes. we we should all pay tremendous heed to, to that devotion, those devotions for sure, uh, to our benefit. If you'd like to be part of the program, we would love to hear from you. Colin is ready to go. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Wide open phone lines. Let me tell you what's going to happen just as sure as first Saturday follows first Friday every month, somebody is going to get about the business of getting busy about something. They want to ask Colin a question, but they're not going to call until half past the hour, and then the lines are going to be full, and they're not going to be able to get through. So I'm encouraging you, if you've got a question, call now. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- If you're outside the United States and Canada, I give you the same admonition. Call now. Your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And um, you can always send us an email. That email address is Openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Charles Beery is our celebrity producer today. And uh, I'll give you a little, a little hint here. Michael McCall celebrating his birthday today. That's why we have uh, Charles Beery uh, as our celebrity producer. So say a little birthday prayer for Michael McCall today. Uh, Matt Gubensky is our call screener. Not Matt's birthday, but it will be soon. And we'll clue you in on that, too. Um, And then Jeff Burson, Magnificent Person, is handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology here at EWTN, Colin Donovan. How are you?
2: I'm doing pretty good, but not as on top of his form like you are today. Oh, you are well, really rolling you know,
1: along. Yeah, I just—I almost forgot about the doggone show, to be quite frank with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm just happy I'm in the studio. Um, so I've got a question here uh, that is addressed to either Father Wade Menezes or Father Mitch Pacwa.
2: Oh, well, they'll have to take now, me. I'm it, at the end of the how road. How it got so.
1: into the Friday, envelope or Friday folder, I have no I idea, know. but we're going to throw it at you anyway. Sure, it's from sure. Sharon, and she says... If my pastor makes up the words during consecration, is it a valid consecration? He won't say on the night he was betrayed, Jesus' disciples are his friends. He skips the Blessed Virgin often. He skipped the saints except St. Anthony because the church is St. Anthony's. I left relics in the church for people to pick up, and he made fun of the relics. I wear three scapulars, and he said scapulars are old-fashioned and outdated. I watch DWTN live streams every Sunday because I'm concerned if I am receiving the Lord in communion. Do I need to find a different church? Please pray for this priest. And and she only asked these two because those were the ones she was most familiar (laughs) with. Of uh, the questions that were answered. So. Sure,
2: sure. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Is he past retirement? Those are the kinds yeah. of things we've well, heard of. you know, I think it 20, might be. 30 years I, ago.
1: I think it might be good here, and, and, and we'll get your insight as sure. to uh, what, you know, you can give your answer assuming that what we see here is an accurate depiction of what's going on. Right. But it should be mentioned. Uh, to all of our listeners, that when, when we t- when we tackle these questions via email, when we can't have any give and take with, with the person who's submitting the question, you know, we're really kind of forced to assume that they're giving us an accurate description of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And that may or may not be true to certain degrees.
2: Ex- exactly. And based on that, we will, you know, to give an answer which is appropriate to what was said, whether and then there will be other people, of course, who may have similar issues and they can apply it to that. Uh, in, in the case of the sacraments, the priest is obliged to bring three things to it. The proper matter, the proper form, and those are the words required by the church that, uh, to effect that particular sacrament, whichever one of the seven sacraments it is, and the intention to do what the church does. If those three are there, the sacrament, whichever of the seven it is, is valid, now, in the case of the Eucharist, the matter is bread and, and wine. The Church has some requirements for those two things, and those should be followed, but not following them doesn't necessarily mean that a particular element is false, for example. Likewise, with regard to the form, the Church op- re- uh, obliges under obedience uh, a certain text that is, in, that is in, the, in the Missal. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, etc., etc., but yet recognizes by the theological tradition that there are certain core elements of that form, those words, that are necessary for the, in this case, the consecration that took place. And that is to say that this thing, bread, or this thing, wine, is the body of Christ, is the blood of Christ. In other words, there is a positive affirmation, the priest repeating the words that Christ used at the Last Supper, and therefore, Christ himself, through this priest, acting in the person of Christ, effects the trans- transubstantiation of the bread and wine. The words that were described in the email uh, were ones at the beginning of that, but were not likely touching the validity of the form. In other words, the, what is generally considered the essential words. Now, I will say any priest has a serious obligation to use the words the church gives him because the church is the guarantor of the validity of her sacraments. Only she is, not the priest, not the bishop, not even the pope, except as the pope makes formal decisions regarding those words, for example. So the church has those words. They are to be said. Now, when you chip away at those words, what you what you generally end up doing is you forget your obligation. And the obligation is to use the form the Church given, even though the essential words are contained within it. Now, that would be a moral question for a particular priest, because there is a serious moral obligation to use that form as there is a serious moral obligation to, to, to confect a valid sacrament. A violation of that would be a sin for him, even though the communicant, might receive a valid Eucharist because the essential form was used. So this this is something that's very serious, and priests should not change the words of the sacramental forms. They bring their own intention acquired at ordination and the power to, to, to confect the Eucharist or to absolve from sin uh, or, or to give the anointing of the sick or the confirmation in the cape of bishops or priests uh, who have that faculty. And they should do that work with the seriousness which the church obliges them to it, because the validity of the sacraments and the sacramental life of an individual is effected by not following those uh those prescriptions of the church. Some of the other things that were mentioned there were I sort of hinted at this in the late 60s, the 70s and into the 80s, it was quite a quite an issue in many many places for priests to play loosey-goosey with uh, with uh, with the mass, uh to write their own prayers or to use unauthorized prayers uh and to do these kinds of things, that has, for the most part, died out. But here and there, you still see it. And I think it's worth, you know, you know, Father. I, I think we're not your parish. You're not serving your parish pastorally by making it up. The church gives you a liturgy. You use the liturgy the church gives you. And of course, as Jesus instructs in Matthew 18, if the individual doesn't uh, heed your 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 warning, take it to his bishop. And so. That's the way to proceed in truth and in charity uh, without, you know, turning it into, you know, something of a parish fracas or, or or whatever.
1: 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: Send us an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: It's a new month, which means a new offering from EWTN Publishing, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis by our very own Foundress, Mother Angelica. This book is drawn from Mother's popular Biblical Spirituality TV series. Through her uh, personal accounts and down-to-earth reflections, you will enter into each passage And experience God's love and guidance like never before. Mother's Life Lessons will show you how to stop looking back in order to look ahead and how to enjoy the promises of God. You'll see the importance of consulting the Lord in all things and the power of your prayers in helping convert sinners even at the last moment of their lives. You'll discover how deeply you are cherished by God and how close he is to you, especially in difficult times. You'll also learn ways you can imitate Abraham and other biblical models of holiness, the means by which you can help release an ocean of God's mercy in the world, and much, much more. Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis by Mother Angelica herself, available at EWTNRC.com, by Catholic Shop, EWTNRC.com. We still have some open phone lines for you, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Maria, a first-time caller in Boston, Massachusetts, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Maria, you're on with Colin Donovan.
0: Hello. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, So, Thank you. Um, So my question is, I had a discussion with my husband today about organ donation. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that even I'm Catholic, he's Catholic, but even if you're not Catholic, the science tells you that you cannot donate an, a dead organ. So the person has to be alive in order to donate the organ. So you are literally killing the person in order to take their organs. Um, but he says I'm too black and white in my thinking that mm-hmm. it's a beautiful, lovely gift that you're giving to someone, which I guess if you're giving up your life for someone, sure, it is a beautiful, lovely gift, but they're killing you in order to give that organ away. So yeah, well, I was wondering, mm-hmm. if the Catholic Church, what what is the stance that the Catholic Church takes on that?
2: If someone were to kill somebody to get their organs, the Catholic Church's stance would be that it's a violation of the Fifth Commandment, a grave one, a mortal sin, murder, etc. That's generally not how it's viewed medically, uh, nor by the church in analyzing this situation. And so typically, if we have very often, we're most familiar with the unilateral or, or organs, which are bilateral, like, like kidneys. Uh, and so what happens is somebody who is a tissue match will donate a kidney and they're living they don't die in the process they give it to a relative um, who uh who receives that uh and i've I've actually met patients who've gone through that process the moral question then generally comes in on donation in uh, the you know the at the hour of death so traditionally what the church has said is well if you look at how death has been defined over the millennia Mostly, death we know occurs because the person stops, their heart stops beating, they stop breathing, uh, they can't be restarted, and and so they're died, they're buried. We know of cases, obviously, where people's metabolic levels are so low that they weren't actually dead, although they gave all the signs of it, even medical cases in, in recent decades of this. But the point is that the the, the physician and so on makes a moral uh, comes to a morally certain conclusion that all of the marks of death are present uh, and therefore the person can, you can go th- bury them, go through the funeral and all of that. So if all of those marks are present, then it's also morally acceptable to uh, to take organs for donation. So in the 1990s, this question was asked to uh, the Holy See, Pope John Paul II's uh, uh, Congregation of the doctrine of the faith, and he himself, uh, in public statements, uh, to this in a particular case where it was meeting with a group of of doctors to consider the question uh, that regarding uh, the definition of death in the modern world because we have so much technology we can you know we can find signs of life where in previous centuries they couldn't find signs of life. Uh, People are not accidentally buried as frequently as they were in the past, which definitely was something that happened. Uh, So that being the case, how was this to be addressed? There had been a standard created at Harvard University in 1968, I believe, called the Harvard Standard, which proposed that in addition to cardiovascular failure, the traditional way of death, it could also be determined that there was whole brain failure, and death could be uh, uh, could be defined on the basis of the the loss of the entire brain function. Now, necessarily, when somebody uh, somebody whose heart stops beating, that part of their brain that sends the signals to the heart, which is continuous, and to the lungs, which are continuous, and the gastro you know, internal system which is continuous; those have stopped. So this was actually finding that if all of the all of the signals to the body that would keep the heart and lung system going are not present, then is there any possibility of recovery from, say, a traumatic brain injury or something like this? So that was the question that was asked to the Holy See. What they what they proposed was over the course of twenty-four to forty-eight hours, a series of tests. First, a scientific determination that the person is brain dead. And this is done by also all clearly the, the brain activity, the measurements of that insofar as our instrumentations can determine them. Then taking them off of any respirator such that they had for two minutes at a time, and this is done several times over the course of a couple days, so that it's really a confirmation not only is the brain dead, but this is demonstrated by the fact that when they're off the respirator, there's no heart-lung function either. So you could almost say that it's it's both. And in that situation, the person could be coded as called dead, and uh, their organs could be removed for transplantation. This was... The theory, unfortunately, in our day, transplantation has become big business, and there is probably, I think the estimates are, uh, a third to a half of centers that are uh, that declare brain death are actually following this procedure, and sometimes they were doing it. Declare brain death, person is dead, let's take the organs. So there are a lot of moral and legal difficulties with this. In fact, they're trying to re, re uh, to redefine the uh, universal death standard, which is the basis of laws in our country and in others uh, that would define the when death, when death is uh, called uh, in, in a way which would be more generous for donation. So there is no way of knowing from, from what you described whether somebody's organs were taken prematurely. But if they were declared dead, and they were brain dead, and they also had no signs of cardiovascular death, then theoretically, at least, they could meet the criteria which John Paul II had said could be legitimately accepted as death. But outside of knowing all the details of the circumstances, it's hard to know that. This is why I always recommend for Catholics, and I think this is a good practice, and I think one also would be recommended by the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia, that everybody who finds it in the situation where, for example, there is irreversible, you know, we, we know that we're allowed to if we have incurable disease and we're allowed to refuse extraordinary measures. In other words, I'm going to die in the next two weeks or something. If my heart stops let me go and the church calls this you know if this calls this fine obviously you want to be able you want to have a moral logic that the church accepts there so the importance of a spiritual guide for catholics and for anybody for that matter that these decisions that are being made are moral and also attention to what the doctors are saying so that you can ask the right questions because I think there is a sort of forward-leaning pressure in medicine now to, because they know that there's a lot of people who need transplants to get transplants. And obviously, those kinds of circumstances are potentially corrupting of systems, of this whole system, and of medicine itself. And so that has to be, uh, uh, has to be guarded against. So there are definitely questions to be asked, but the principle that John Paul II enunciated in the 90s, is still valid. Brain death could be declared, and at that point, the organs could be taken, whether it's an an older person or another person who has suffered some catastrophic energy and has said simply, I wish to die of this disease, I don't wish to be kept on machinery, and they're allowed to simply be taken off that. The Church says that that can be a legitimate conclusion. A decision. Not necessarily so, but again, with the proper moral guidance, that can be a legitimate decision. So uh, I think there's a lot there, and it's not a single black and white answer to all such circumstances, but I think the simple answer would be to say that if a legitimate declaration of death has been declared, then what they will often do then is immediately take the organs. So I think there's a question of has the declaration been made or have they taken the organs? Uh, so a lot of ways that you can cut corners on this, and give show disrespect for the patient, uh, and also disrespect for God and the law, the Fifth Commandment that we we may not kill, but we can, as the Church says, allow ourselves to die of, uh, of of illness when there are. There is no possibility of any resolution of our sickness and so on. And that's not starving. That's not dehydrating the person to death by removing water. No, this is at the end of life, and that choice can be made.
1: Our friends at Domestic Church Media in New Jersey, they need to hear from you next week. They're airing their year-end Radiothon next Tuesday through Thursday. So if you're listening in Asbury Park, Freehold, Trenton, Cape May, Hammond, or anywhere, Please support your local EWTN Catholic radio station. 833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. You know, I had an inquiry from a listener recently. Who says that we say the United States and Canada sometimes, and we say North America sometimes? And he thought we were leaving Mexico out because Mexico's in North America, but we're not heard in Mexico. Yeah. So we are heard in Canada Except by a on our Spanish channels, yeah. maybe. So, which yeah. we're, which yeah. we clearly are not. This is the other side of the of the coin here. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Uh, Nina called in from New Jersey, Colin, and she's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. And in response to our, our first email today, she said, Are laypeople allowed to question a priest about actions he's taking during Mass that seem to be at least unusual?
2: Absolutely. Uh, one, uh, canon law says that the laity have the right to obtain from their pastors uh, those spiritual goods which the Church communicates. And if you think that somehow you're being deprived of something, because of the actions, behaviors, and so on of your, of your pastor, then, or, your, or an associate or a visiting priest, you certainly have the right to ask them about that and to obtain a clarification. Maybe you have misunderstood. Very often that that's the case, and other times it isn't. Uh, like the earlier caller and the questions regarding the Mass, there is a recourse on that. Uh, speak to the priest. If you're not satisfied, you can bring that to the bishop. I think the, the the difficulty, of course, is that very often I think, you know, people can be overly complaining, um, and it's not good that if ten people have a complaint, they all bring it. But rather that, you know, so I think there's some value that if you're talking to other people, well, father said this, or what father, what did you, what did you think of that? Well, and maybe something that's very simple. You've just never heard of it, or or you just never heard of that possibility. And it can be clarified that way. But you always have that possibility to to make a request for your own spiritual good and the spiritual good of the parish to the peace, the priest, the pastor or associate, whomever, uh, because the church has given you that right and Christ has, he wants you to receive the full benefits of the faith and the sacraments and the spiritual uh, gifts that he has left the church. Uh, And therefore, you should feel free to do that in charity, of course, always in charity.
1: 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. Victoria writes in, the Catechism mentions that in the last days, the Church will follow the death and resurrection of Jesus. What is the basis of that, and what are some theories on how that might go?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of at a loss to see where she's reading that in, into the Catechism, except that the implication there in speaking of the, the uh, eschaton, in other words, the, the end of, of the earthly natural existence— uh, which is, begins in uh, the 600, 668 and later in the Catechism, is to point to the path that our Lord himself uh, went through, uh, his passion, his death, and his resurrection, and that each of us, in a certain sense, will go through that. Uh, we, we all live. We all are tried. Uh, in his case, he wasn't tried for his own sins. He was tried for ours. Uh, but we will be tried for our own sins and uh, we will be rewarded or purified in purgatory and or go to the other place Uh, as a consequence of uh, of our sins or lack thereof we will obviously go to heaven and so directly so each of us will go through that but we will not receive resurrection until the end of the world when christ returns and at the end of the world, Scripture describes how those who are alive still, and therefore have not died, have not that they will receive their glorification at the end, in the consummation of all things, in the coming, uh, the coming of Christ. So they will not die in that sense, but they will, they will receive that that purification and transformation of glory, uh, and be of no as as it describes will will not lack anything compared to the saints who have died before and have all gone all gone to their reward so it's just the the order of things as our Lord used and said in the parables, unless the seed dies in the ground and falls into the ground and then it receives the sunlight and the water and so on, it will not grow up it will not grow rise up so we all go through that, and the church at the end will go through that in a certain sense collectively because it will be the last assault of the devil and those who are his uh, uh, minions if you will uh, against the work of christ against the salvation of souls and that final trial will be our introduction uh, to death and glory in the same way that jesus uh, passion death and resurrection uh, was sort of our our pre-introduction not necessary for himself But he came and he went through it for us, and we will follow him in that same path.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your phone calls at 833-288-3986. We had Tom call, uh, Colin, who called earlier this week. And he wanted to know uh, from you specifically, why do I never hear people talk about Garibondal? Is it approved? Mm -hmm. Is it still being investigated?
2: As far as I know, it's not. I,
1: I have a VHS tape about oh. Garabandal. Well, that, that's right,
2: because Mother <laughs> Mother Angelica was very interested in it in the '90s, and and I uh, I was as well. She had Jerry Lomangino on the show. He was one of the promoters of it. Um, you know, so there was a lot of interest, and there was also some hope that there was there was a message here that would be approved. Uh, and in the end, what was decided in the '90s by the the bishop in Garabandal uh is that there was nothing against faith and morals in the message it wasn't a violation of doctrine or calling people to immoral behavior it it was it was satisfactory from that point of view but he found no evidence of supernaturality this is the mark of a of a credible revelation private revelation or apparition is that there There must be marks of the supernatural. Because otherwise, how do we distinguish between the human spirit and the human piety that may produce in the mind of an individual uh, phenomena and in, in their own mind certain you know, messages such as they perceive and so on? And there could even be external phenomena, but there was nothing that the church could settle on and say, ultimately, this was uh, a supernatural event. And so on that basis, there it has remained, and there it has remained ever since. And no, there has been no movement on it in 20 years that I'm familiar with. Occasionally, you hear about some of the uh, things which were predicted there. Uh, Obviously, the trials in the church that goes through, every time there's a trial in the church, everybody pops up their last favorite uh, alleged apparition in in support of, well, this was going to happen. But there are other things, uh, the sign that would appear there, Garabandal, the miracle, the illumination of consciences or warning, as it was called. Some of these things, if they are true, they will happen, whether we believe it true or not. Uh, if they are not true, they won't happen, whether we believe it true or not. Our safest course in all of these cases of allegations of apparitions where the church has not stamped the cr- as credible is to follow those things which we know are certain lords fatima um baro barang some of the even the lesser known ones all of these things call for prayer and penance the rosary fatima is the great uh, apparition of the last 200 years in my opinion it gives us as john paul ii called it the, it's the gospel for the 20th century i would say it's still the gospel for the 21st century prayer reparation penance um, get uh, close to the Lord through Our Lady, devotion to the Immaculate Heart, consecration to the Immaculate Heart, uh, the the five pillars of Fatima, as I like to call them. All these things are the gospel for our day, as John Paul II said. If we do those things, why do we need a garabandal or a Medjugorje or an Akita or something else? Usually it's because, oh, there's some bauble there that attracts us. Oh, the cardinals will be one against the other or something like that. Well, I'd say take a good church history course (laughs) and go find out that that's always been the case. Uh, And so stick with what the church has said as credible. Yeah, you can have your ear to the ground for, for new apparitions and so on that have a certain credibility maybe the bishop is not unfavorable he's seeing what happens then you'd be like in the early days of Fatima but if something has sat around for a long time I think the church is saying no this is not uh, this is not something that uh, we can say is credible based on the theological grounds and the marks of that are given in the church documents that govern uh, assessment of these things
1: Back to the phones we go. JW is a first-time caller in the great state of Wyoming listening on Sirius XM channel 130. JW, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. My question is about annulments. I have a family friend who went through the uh, went to a parish priest, told him their situation and his story was uh, instructed to go to apply for the annulment and go through um, all of that process with the tribunal, which they did. In the end the tribunal did not rule in the favor of granting the annulment. They took they went back to the parish priest and, and told him the results and asked what could be done. The parish priest granted the annulment. I wanted to just ask is that possible? Is that can that be done?
2: Yeah, on what authority? The the bishop is the authority in the diocese. Everybody in the diocese, including all priests and deacons, derive their authority from the bishop. The tribunal is appointed of the bishop to judge the matter. Therefore, the tribunal gives the the you know sort of the uh, the approval of the diocese of the bishop of the local ordinary to the judgment that this is uh, this was an invalid uh, marriage. And therefore, one can, with a moral certainty at least, proceed again with a new marriage according uh, in the church. Uh, no individual priest has the right to do that. Uh, he can say, I suppose, in confession, as sometimes were done in very unusual circumstances, sometimes people you know the husband left 20 years ago they heard some rumor that he died they can't prove that he's died they can't get any evidence that he's died there's some question as to whether the person you know even if they were validly married whether there's a a marriage even on those grounds there can be circumstances where there must be good faith judgments by the tribunal or even uh, in the past that was sometimes done uh, Uh, say, in what was called an internal forum solution, in other words, the priest doing that. But uh, in the new code of canon law, all the provisions for those kinds of circumstances were provided for. And so Rome decided that, no, the internal forum solution was no longer an approach to these matters. All the way of solving the difficult cases were envisioned in the new code and in the work of the tribunals today. Now, May there are other things that have occurred since then that would show that to be false. I don't know. I'm not a canonist, but I do know that the priest had no authority. He may have been personally convinced that the marriage was invalid. The couple may be personally convinced or the the man or persons who wanted uh, the marriage declared uh, null as being null from the beginning. They may even have a, a personal certainty of that but on what criteria is is it based when everything has been laid before the tribunal and the tribunal has said no there is no evidence of invalidity here, no evidence uh, uh, in the in the psychological state of the individual that they weren't able to form a lifelong commitment, no evidence in the the, the form of the sacrament or in other circumstances that might have... Uh, raise questions about it or the intention of either of the parties uh, to a lifelong union or to have children or not have children. All of those things can affect the validity. And all of those things, I presume, and it is a presumption on my part, would have been brought out in the tribunal. uh, And therefore, uh, that ought to have been sufficient. And that certainly creates hardships for people who are are personally convinced that their uh, marriage was not valid And you hear these cases all the time. But, you know, is that a basis for moral behavior going forward, of forming a new marriage which may actually be invalid itself if the previous was valid? So, no, I would say the priest had no right to tell them that, and that was not a responsible uh, uh, thing to do. And that, uh, no, he he can't give an annulment, a decree of nullity, decree is a statement of that of the church He's, he reports to the bishop he is not the church in that city
1: unless this pastor happened to be
2: the bishop the bishop
1: of rome <laughs> well
2: who is immediate and supreme power everywhere on earth to every catholic on earth yes that's true
1: thanks jw we appreciate the phone call 833 288 EWTN is our toll free number 833 288 3986 Tony wants to know, can anyone, for example, non-Catholics, go to confession? If not, why not?
2: Well, there's always a yes, yes and no in these. Uh, the Church has certain circumstances. In, in the past, this would have been something that would have been very difficult to do. Yet I'm sure in wartime, many a non-Catholic went to the chaplain. You think World War II, World War I, Korea and Vietnam and so on you know to have a spiritual talk with the priest and he may even have absolved them that's a that's you would say was a serious situ- situation and so the code of canon law affirmatively provides today that there can be situations when the sacraments can be given to people who are not a catholic it's easier for those who come from churches in the full sense of that like the greek orthodox church the ruthenian uh, Catholic Church, Ukrainian Catholic Church, the Maronites, and so on. All of these are true churches in the sense that they have a hierarchy that comes from the apostles, apostolic succession. They have uh, sacraments, and therefore the sacraments, their sacraments are valid, their hierarchy is valid, but they're not in communion with the Bishop of Rome. And so there is a defect in their ecclesialness, if you will, from that lack of communion uh, with Rome. But the church would very readily admit uh, a person of one of these Eastern churches, uh, the Catholic churches, that's not a question. They can come, they can receive uh, Latin Eucharist any time, but the Orthodox churches, for example. And so that's provided for in the Code of Canon Law and for others. And it gives a certain series of conditions. In other words, a baptized, a non-baptized person can't receive the sacraments. So they'd have to be baptized. A baptized non-Catholic could theoretically receive the sacraments. They would have to be to be determined worthy. Uh, and that would be a conversation to have with the priest who envisions, or by the priest who envisions giving the sacraments to a person. Uh, there may be extraordinary situations, like I mentioned, in war times. The use of general absolution for soldiers, going into battle, where the priest gives a general absolution to all. He doesn't know their individual and particular dispositions or their status or whatever. But on those for whom it can be effective, it will be effective because uh, ultimately it's Christ that's absolving and so on. Uh, So yes, the answer to that is a yes with a lot of asterisks after it. uh, But indeed, Uh, non-Catholics can, in particular circumstances of serious need, receive the sacraments uh, in appropriate circumstances, and depending on their disposition, baptized or not, orthodox or not, uh, but even Protestants could theoretically uh, in that situation.
1: And, of course, people preparing to enter the church would... Need to make a first confession before they've actually entered the church, right? Uh, unless they be, they're to, whether uh, they be a second grader or an adult.
2: If they if they are an unbaptized person, if they are if they are, or rather if they are a, a baptized ba- person, a baptized person, yes, they would have to make a confession of their whole life uh, from baptism to that point. Uh, if they were unbaptized, of course, baptism is a an all in gift of the Lord and right. their sins personal and. And uh original are taken away.
1: 833 288 ewtn Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Join us Monday night for the Journey Home, 8 P.M. Eastern Time. John Mark Rhodeye invites Matt Gerald to discuss leaving the Methodist Church to become Catholic. That's the Journey Home Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Again, 833 288 3986, we could probably squeeze in a call or two. Uh, It's kind of a vague question, but Ellen writes in, is it wrong for me to approach non-Catholics with a quote-unquote I-won't-judge-you attitude?
2: Well, uh, our Lord said it, and the Pope has repeated it uh, as well, yeah, it's it's not our our place to judge the moral condition of the individual. We judge their behavior. So a person who does something which we know to be wrong and we should have a good certainty of that obviously, a moral certainty. I keep using that words so that just means that according to the knowledge we have, we are con- we have the conviction that it is more likely than not likely that uh, the person has say committed a a sin against the fifth commandment or sixth or seventh or whatever and so you have that degree of certainty then sure you can speak to speak to the person Um, it's not your place absolutely to determine their moral guilt before god the church acknowledges that there is invincible ignorance and that is the person who is completely ignorant of the sinfulness of their actions whatever it is to remain outside the church we can't say that they're morally guilty of that we would say you should come in because all the gifts of the lord are in the church but we can't assume that there's moral fault in them for not coming in even if they're a protestant they have the upbringing and a number of popes have spoken to the on this point going back to Pius the ninth and certainly the second vatican council and since and so what we do is we we speak We say what is true, and we do it in a charitable way. And then if they have follow-up questions to that, we can get into the matter deeply. But it won't accomplish much, and it certainly won't be efficient, which means the same thing as effective, to go at the person with a non-condemnatory attitude, uh, or with a condemnatory attitude. That won't be be effective in, in touching their hearts and changing them you the lord said you know not to quench the quench the wick to extinguish the little flame at the end of it and so we can't be that person there may be a little bit of a flame in that soul of that person don't go in and quench it right off the bat and hope that you're going to be the one to light it only god can light it but you can help you know bring in the oxygen bring in the you know fan the flames a little bit and 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 give it fuel Uh, That's what you want to do, and you're not going to do that by going in and, you know, putting the person down and and so on.
1: Ronald wants to know what you think of Tolstoy's writings.
2: Well, um, having watched War and Peace (laughs) recently— I don't know. It seemed an awful, like uh, a little bit like a male Russian Jane Austen novel, Jane Austen novel, Jane Austen in this case, this big guy. So uh, yes, it's very interesting history. Uh, you know, War and Peace is the Na- Napole- ends up with Napoleon's campaign against Russia. And I always said, this, this doesn't quite fit that context, but I always the uh, a comment I read years and years and years ago, I won't tell you how many decades, that German music always sounds like the Germans are attacking Moscow, and Russian music always sounds like they are defending it. There's a sort of a profound deepness of soul in Russian music, and I think their literature reflects that as well. Uh, whereas the, the militancy of, of, of the German spirit uh, gives you a different reaction uh, to that. So uh, I like. I've not read the book. You know, I'm sort of like Charlie Brown in this, who's constantly. <laughs> here's that and Peace up on top of the shelf. (laughs) Where where are the cliff notes? (laughs) But uh, certainly the movie, if that was a fairly accurate presentation, it was very very moving and very stirring and, and said a lot about Russian history, I thought, and the Russian psyche and spirit.
1: And Lionel, just a minute and a half or so left here, wants to know if there's anything like the rapture in the Catholic Church.
2: Did you really say Lionel?
1: Lionel.
2: Lionel. How about that? yes there is it's at the end of the world when and i spoke of it earlier when jesus comes and those who are alive will be seized up to meet him in the air and then the universe will be changed and god will be all in all don't happen a thousand years before that coming that's all i can say
1: not where you want to be in that uh in that particular uh situation So, Colin, thank you for being so gracious with your time. The hour has flown by, as it always does, and we want to remind you that if you have any theology questions, you can, you've can you got three avenues uh, to access a living, breathing, professional theologian, Mr. Colin Donovan. You can give us a call uh, on EWTN's open line Friday between 3 and 4 Eastern time. And Colin will be happy to answer your question there. You can always send us an email. That email address is at ewtn.com. That's openline, all one word, at ewtn.com. Or if you want to give our listener comment line a call, that's our regular number after 4 p.m. Eastern time any day. You can call 833-288-EWTN. And you can leave your question for Colin at that location at that time so on behalf of our host our very own vice president of theology mr colin donovan our celebrity producer today charles beery our call screener matt gubensky and our social media maven mr jeff burson i'm jack williams thanks so much for another great week of ewtn's open line back at it tomorrow well not tomorrow but back at it monday with father john tragilio talking apologetics in general Until we get together then, have a great weekend and God bless.